Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. This is blasphemy. This is madness. Madness. This is Sparta! I beg to differ, King Leonidas, but this is madness. This is Film Spotting Madness. Film Spotting Madness, our annual March Madness-style tournament, 64 films, only one survives. I think the Spartans would approve. This year's contest, the best of the 2000s, and on this week's show, we'll hack our way through all 32 first-round matchups. The Dark Knight, There Will Be Blood, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, No Country for Old Men. Will one of these top seeds come out on top, or is there a spoiler lurking? It's all ahead. I'm just going to write in 300 for every matchup. On Film Spotting. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Film Spotting. On this week's show, Film Spotting Madness and Real Heart Wrenching Madness, as depicted in John Cassavetti's 1974 film, A Woman Under the Influence, we might also get real heart wrenching madness in the form of a film critic's reaction to said film, the second film in our Cassavetti's Marathon. <laughs> Something nod at me about this one, Adam. I can't wait. That review is coming later in the show, but first. It is Film Spotting Madness time, the best of the 2000s. We will give you a little Film Spotting Madness 101 for any newcomers out there. It's our March Madness style single elimination tournament. Listener votes determine who advances. And every week, we, of course, share another round. So just like the basketball tournament, we start with 64. We go down to 32, the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, a Final Four. And finally, there is that championship matchup, and we declare a winner. This all did begin as a twinkle in the eye of listener Mike Merrigan in Dover, New Hampshire. Sam and I took that idea, got a little obsessed with it, and... Here we are. Here we are in year five. Yes. This is the fifth year we've been doing this. We began with working actors, so pitted all of who we thought were the best working actors against each other. Then we moved on the next year to working directors. In year three, we took a look at the films that are in the film spotting pantheon, added those that we've done sacred cow reviews of over the years, put those all together, and came up with what, you know, something of the best film of all time, at least according to those titles that were in that group. Now, last year, we began, this points to you and Sam losing your minds a little bit, a three-year plan. Last year was the first installment, 1990s movies. This year, 
We're moving ahead to the 2000s. Next year, you can see where this is going. We'll do the end of the decade, the best of the 2010s. So if you want to know who won last year, if you're curious, there was a bit of a surprise upset with the number three seed Fargo taking out number one seed Pulp Fiction. I thought that would have been a sure thing, but no, Fargo won it. This year, we have the Coens back in the mix. They do have another top seed. In fact, the number one seed, No Country for Old Men. Can I just say real quick that the 90s was easy. The best of the 90s. It's easy to say. It's easy to write. You did not allow me to ever say again the best of the noughties. No. For the 2000s. And then we got to go to the 2010s. We need some catchy names for these decades. We're in the market okay. for some catchy names. We are putting that out there for film spotting listeners. We'll have a little bit more on the selection process and just some of the housekeeping that you may need to know about Film Spotting Madness to fully participate. But we want to dive into the matchups, examining the best films of the 2000s. And we decided to take a little bit of a different approach this year. Instead of just going down the bracket and reacting, you're still going to get those kind of off-the-cuff reactions to the matchups and ultimately our picks. But we're going to do it in the form of what else? top five list. We're going to start with the top five matchups that were the easiest for us to pick, and then we'll get the top five that were the hardest. And I'm guessing that we may agree on one or two, but we will also probably disagree on many more. And that's the fun of film spotting. And that's the fun of film spotting madness. If you want to follow along, if you're listening to the show and you actually happen to be in a place where you can look at your phone or you are staring at your computer and have a lot of free time. You want to see what matchups we're talking about and potentially vote filmspotting.net slash madness. Emphasis on a lot of free time. A lot of free time. Filmspotting.net slash madness. You can see all the matchups. You can also see it in bracket form. Okay. We dive in then to the picks, Josh. Our top five easiest choices to make. These are the ones, the way I set it up simply was I didn't hesitate for even a second when I pick my winner. Your number five. Okay, my number five. So not the absolute easiest, but in the batch was, it's already been mentioned, No Country for Old Men, the number one seed versus Moon, which I believe was a play-in winner. Moon was a play-in winner going up against Primer. So 2000s, low-budget sci-fi flicks. All right, let's get to some comments on this matchup. You can always leave a comment as you're voting in the Film Spotting poll, so we encourage you to do that as we go along in Film Spotting Madness here. Eric Hill, who's from Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, said, while both films are fine updates to the sci-fi of ideas canon, I feel like Primer is both a spiritual stepchild in the Kubrick and Tarkovsky lineage, the one I find most rewarding, as well as a very singular take on the time travel conundrum that is as intellectually slippery as the concepts truly demand. Well said. Eric, a little bit more on that play and matchup. Marcel Chapa or Chapa in Moscow, Russia. I watch both films for the first time for this madness. My vote goes to Moon. Primer is a very interesting concept, but practically incomprehensible unless you probably give it another couple of watches. Man, I wish I had time for it. Moon, on the contrary, is straightaway entertainment, has some great sci-fi ideas, plus a great Sam Rockwell performance. And a bit of critique of madness coming in already here from Rob in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Is anyone going to comment how the first ever Golden Brick winner was relegated to play-in status? It's like Adam and Sam don't even and care about their own awards. Yeah, it's true. We will take that one. Rob Moon did beat out Primer pretty decisively, 70% to 30%. Unfortunately, it does run into a buzzsaw going up against the number one overall seed. And Josh, actually, this was my number one 
easiest to decide. So you're number five, my number one. I'm sorry, Rob. I do, of course, have a lot of affection for Moon, the first Golden Brick winner, but it's the Cones and it's no country. It's also your number one film of 2007. I had it. I had a lowly number eight in the year 2007. Might hmm. need to revisit that. Yeah. So that's why this was an easy one for me. And yes, Moon was the winner of the inaugural Golden Brick Award. However, it didn't make the top 10 for either of us in 2009. I think I probably would have had it in the 15 to 20 range, maybe. Yeah, probably top 20 for me as well. We do have a little bit of feedback here we want to share before moving on to my number five pick. This comes to us from longtime listener, regular voicemail contributor Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan, who may have somehow got an early sneak peek at the bracket and decided to share with us his live reaction to making some of these difficult choices. Hey, Film Spotting, this is Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan. About uh, number one, No Country for Old Men versus Moon. So recently watching um, the Oscars, uh, a family member who's n- not as much of a cinephile as I might be sees Javier Bardem come out to present, and she says first how handsome he is, but how she still can't get Anton Trigger out of her head, and nor can I. This is uh, the pinnacle of madness because I can quote myself also as saying that Moon is my favorite sci-fi film in the last five five years, ten years. So here you are asking me to admit that if uh, one film has pleasantly haunted me more deeply and deserves to go ahead more than the other, it's no country. Um, That said, uh, flipping a coin has helped me with that decision. So uh, there you go, friendos. So I think Jeff may be onto something there, taking the Anton Chigurh approach. Don't you pretty much flip a coin for the tough ones too, Josh? Yeah, that, as you'll see as we get into this. <laughs> My number five, easiest choice to make. And I may have snuck this in the top five just to needle you a little bit, Josh, but it's not inaccurate. The Fantastic Mr. Fox versus four months, three weeks, two days. Might also be on your easiest top five just going the other way. Why would you be so callous and cruel to such a sweet, I know, lovable, I know, it's little just film? A fox I mean, if you're going to play, if you're going to play bad guy, pick a pick a different opportunity. So this is one Sam is calling the best laid plans matchup. I love it. You have the Fantastic Mr. Fox, Josh Larson's number three film of 2009. What were you thinking? Yeah, I don't number know. Three out of my mind. Four months, three weeks, and two days from Christian Munju, the Romanian director, was also a number three film of the year for you, 2007. See, okay, this so, was hard for me. Okay, so actually this is going to be on your hardest yes. list, isn't it? Neither made my top ten of their respective years, which actually does surprise me. I would have thought four months made it. I admit I need to revisit The Fantastic Mr. Fox. There are a handful of Wes Anderson films I need to revisit, but this actually wasn't too tough for me. I just think the Munju film is a monumental work, if a difficult one to sit through. I don't know if you have the credibility to vote in this matchup, Adam. Probably not. But that that is going to be an interesting debate. I think it's some other pairings. How are we going to weigh these movies that we think of as fun, enjoyable? Yeah. Would love to revisit them. Uh-huh. And the, you know, as, as you call them, the one-timers. I mean, do one-timers just get voted out? I, I know. I might The answer that is way. yes, probably. Yeah, in a few instances. <laughs> we will definitely have at least one perfect example of that. Okay, your number four easiest choice. Number four was There Will Be Blood versus Atonement. As you can see, I'm going with the heavy hitters here. Uh, I, too— See, now you're needling me. Well— Because <laughs> you know I adore Atonement. And I like it. You know, I just—I'd um, have to revisit that to get— a little better sense of why you love it so much. I'm going to bet it's not that difficult for you, though. Do you no. like it that much that you're struggling 
voting against it. Again, I think one of the common themes throughout this show and all throughout Madness is going to be the folly of our list-making process as we look back on our top 10 films of various years. And the reality is I had Atonement, which I stand by loving, as my number two film of the year. That's higher than I had There Will Be Blood. Uh So, yes, it should be difficult, but over time and upon rewatch, I have even more appreciation for blood. So not too tough for me. Atonement did just sneak into this tournament by beating out Sarah Pauly's Away From Her. So that was our 2007 special play and a little bit of feedback on that. Jake Albrecht said, I love Adam very much, so it brings me no joy to say this, but I think Atonement is an awful movie that shouldn't be within spitting distance of this tournament, Away From Her in a Walk. Ouch. Ouch, Jake. Christopher Redmond in Ottawa said no contest. Away From Her should run away with this poll, plus the bracket will be much richer with a touch of CanCon. Canadian content, okay. he says. Sure. Is that a sure. thing? Josh Norris says, Atonement is a beautiful big movie that manages to stay small at the same time. Away From Her is certainly a good movie, but for me, Atonement is in the top five of the 2000s. Thank you, Josh. You are certainly now higher on my top five list of listeners, way ahead of Jake. <laughs> Atonement did win in a walk 70 to 30 there again. I think Atonement is going to have a much tougher time with There Will Be Blood. My number four easiest choice to make, and it pains me because I love Kelly Reichert. I love that she's in this tournament. Wendy and Lucy, a very good film. I think Meek's cutoff is going to fare a lot better in next year's Madness, and we'll probably get a much higher seed than Wendy and Lucy which is going up against David Fincher's Zodiac in round one of this year's Madness. Fincher actually had two films in the best of the 90s, Fight Club and Seven. Fight Club made it to the Elite Eight before losing to Pulp Fiction. Seven made it to the Sweet 16 before narrowly losing out to Rushmore. This is Fincher's only film in this year's tournament. Panic Room and Benjamin Button are his other 2000s films. Zodiac was my number four film of 07. It did not make your top 10, Josh. And in 2008, Wendy and Lucy did make the cut for either of us, again, really have a lot of respect for that film, but Zodiac is one of those movies that if I actually had the time, I would have no problem watching that movie at least once a year for the rest of my life. Yeah, and I know its stature among cinephiles is huge. I've always been a little bit cooler on Fincher in general, and I'm a little bit cooler on Zodiac. Definitely like it, but I like Wendy and Lucy enough that this was tough for me, and I think I think I went Wendy and Lucy. Did See, you? Now I got to, oh my goodness, I got to put my glasses on. Now these read. are your picks, not your guesses for the tournament. But no, these are picks. my picks. This is the and way I voted. You went Wendy and Lucy? I went Wendy and Lucy. Okay. Let's get to your number three easiest choice. Ratatouille versus In Bruges. And there's a complicated reasoning why this was easy for me. And it involves some Pixar guilt um, over some of the other choices I made in my voting process that maybe <laughs> we'll get to. guilt, yes. Yes. Um, so Ratatouille is kind of, by the time I got to it, it was holding the Pixar flag for me. I would have voted for it over In Bruges anyway, a film which I do like. Try not to hold any three billboards animosity retroactively against it. I do like in Bruges. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, for me, not really a contest here. Okay. This one did not make my top five here easiest or hardest, though I went opposite from you. I did go with in Bruges and our newsletter subscribers got an early look at the bracket. And of course, Sam and I have been obsessively clicking refresh on how the polls are going. And I will just say that this is going to be a bloody one. Maybe that 
bodes in Imbruge's favor, but this matchup between Ratatouille and Imbruge is actually a lot closer than I thought me? it would be. Yeah, it's really close. That's a travesty. So there you go. If you love one of these films, you got to go to filmspotting.net slash madness and vote. We have to acknowledge that Imbruge just barely made this tournament. It went up against Michael Mann's Collateral in the play-in round. Here's a comment from Aaron Teachman in D.C. Collateral is the film that made me rethink Michael Mann as a filmmaker, and it's one of the first movies I saw that took the aesthetic potential of digital video seriously. It's a much more visually ambitious film than Imbruge. Bruges is fine, full of fine performances, but Collateral is also a low-key great ensemble movie. Javier Bardem, Barry Henley, Mark Ruffalo, plus two amazing gripping performances from Jamie Foxx and Tom. Tom Cruise. I gotta take collateral here. Jonathan Anderson writes, are there seriously effing people that are going to effing vote against in effing Bruges? They're all inanimate effing objects. Well, thank you, Jonathan. He's on theme there. Michael in Kiel, Germany? Sure. Kiel? Sure. Okay. Is it mandatory to use the F word when supporting in Bruges in this poll? Yes, we learned Apparently. that it is, actually. And in Bruges did have a lot of support, 72% over collaterals, 28%. And we are splitting in this matchup, Josh going with Ratatouille, and I'm going with in Bruges in that first round matchup. My number three easiest choice was David Lynch's Mulholland Drive over the winner of the new cult cannon play-in, Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko beat out American Psycho. We heard from Chris Massa Minute Massa, who said Donnie Darko is an amazing movie, but American Psycho is funnier, scarier, stranger, and has more to say. In our present conversations about billionaires, elitism, and toxic masculinity, American Psycho feels like it should be required viewing. Here's Barbara in Trier, Germany. Trier? Trier. Trier. Are we going with Trier? Yeah, a lot okay. of Germans out <laughs> Sorry, I was just wanting to continue the theme. Donnie Darko was a special experience for me. I had never seen anything like it before. It felt like my first grown-up movie experience I actually got back at age 20. And every time I rewatch it, there is something new to discover. Though, of course, the soundtrack of American Psycho is cult. Mad World from Donnie Darko will always give me the chills. Jonathan Anderson chimes in. All I'm going to say is if you vote Donnie Darko, you're never going to get a reservation at Dorcia. Well played, Jonathan. Donnie Darko did take down Patrick Bateman. Close, 55% to 45%. But in the noir mindbender matchup we have going in round one here of Film Spotting Madness, my number one film of 2001 can't be found anywhere on Josh's top 10, but David Lynch's Mulholland Drive an easy, easy choice for me. Mulholland Drive is one of the films for me that would be in the top five I would like to see win this tournament. That's how much I love that film. And it's also in the film spotting pantheon. Well, this is looking ahead a little bit, but this matchup was on my hardest list. And you're not going to like where I ended up voting. Wow. Wow. You're killing me. Okay. Number two, easiest matchup, Josh. That would be Amelie versus The New World. And the reason for this is that either I didn't get Malik yet, when he put out The New World, hmm. even though I liked his earlier films right. quite a bit, or Malik didn't quite perfect what he was trying to do with some similar themes that I think all came to fruition in The Tree of Life, because I'm someone who is not high on The New World. That made it very easy for me to go with Amelie here. Hmm. I'm pretty high on The New World. I was when we reviewed it back when it came out which the year exactly slips my mind, but 2006, 2005, maybe even. It was in the early days of film spotting. And at the time, I think I had seen Days of Heaven, but I'm not sure I had even watched Badlands yet. So I was coming pretty new to Malick. In the new world, I actually found, surprisingly, considering what I knew about Malick and his reputation, to be pretty accessible. 
and I have only come to regard it higher over the years as I have rewatched many scenes from it, though never had the chance to see it in its entirety. So not a tough one, not an easy one, but I did give Malick in the New World the edge in that one. My number two easiest choice here in Film Spotting Madness Round 1, Before Sunset versus Adaptation. Richard Linklater and that follow-up to Before Sunrise going against the Spike Jones film. Before Sunrise, the first film in the Ultimate Trilogy from Linklater, made it to the Sweet 16 last year before losing to eventual champion Fargo. Being John Malkovich from Spike Jones also made it to the Sweet 16. It lost out to Goodfellas. My number one film of 2004 was Before Sunset, not on your top 10. I don't know how our friendship is going to survive that. <laughs> Me just learning that fact. Adaptation didn't make either of our best of 2002 lists, but George Clooney's Confessions of a Dangerous Mind and Michelle Gondry's Human Nature, both written by Charlie Kaufman, just like Adaptation, made your top 10 of 2002. My notes tell me. Yeah, th- this is some uh, deep digging Sam has done here. He has done his work. <laughs> because I don't remember all of this off the top of my head. And that surprises me because I was just about to say, hopefully this will help our friendship last a little longer. I voted did for- pick it? Yeah, I did pick before sunset in this pairing, but I'm starting to- I mean, to, Julie Delpy, Nina Simone, that ending, you of can't course, pick against it. Yeah, I didn't. I went with before sunset. Okay, we've already heard my number one easiest. It was your number five, No Country for Old Men beating out Duncan Jones' Moon. What's your number one easiest choice? Well, we're back to Wes here, and it was Royal Tenenbaums versus 25th Hour. Not easiest because I have any issues with 25th Hour. As a matter of fact, that's a film that I very much need to revisit because I liked it when it came out, but not as much as other people have. And I think that's also a film that's only grown in reputation since it did come out. But the Royal Tenenbaums, I mean... Yeah, come on. It's the Royal Tenenbaums, also in the film spotting pantheon, a movie that we gave the Sacred Cow treatment to fairly recently on the show. This is the last hurrah before exile matchup, as Sam puts it, 25th hour versus Tenenbaums. It was your number three film of 01. It didn't make my top five. And without actually having that top five in front of me, that list is suspect because I've always loved the Royal Tenenbaums and I only love it more after rewatching and reconsidering it here on the show. And I presume it was on your top 10 of that year. I'm sure it, it probably was so. yeah, there you as go. well. Now, Spike Lee, his only film spotting madness title is The 25th Hour, a movie I also very much appreciate. But this other note here that Sam has in front of us is one of those notes that makes you wish you had read it ahead of time. Or maybe someone brought this up in advance when you were spending hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks crafting this final 64. How does Inside Man, one of my favorite Spike Lee films, easily in my top four Spike Lee films, and the other three are pretty much masterpieces, how is that not in Film Spotting Madness best of the 2000s? You only have yourself to blame. I do. This bracket bracket (laughs) is just being thrown out the window right now. If I participated in that at all... I would have the right to also complain about the fact that Bamboozled, which was on my top 10. My least favorite Spike Lee. In the year 2000. Your least favorite Spike Lee film? It is. Oh, and it looks even better nowadays than it did then. But I would have argued for that to be in the bracket. Okay. Let's move on then to our hardest choices. The ones where I'm guessing, Josh, you feel a little bit like me. As we sit here right now we aren't even 100% decided. If we didn't have to submit our choices to be part of our bracket contest, which we'll touch on here in a little bit, we would probably hold off or not make the choice at all. I'm actually angry I have to make these choices. And again, I have no one to blame but myself. Yeah, I've already talked about some of my guilt, and we're going to get into a little bit 
of it here. So my fifth hardest was Shaun of the Dead versus Hurt Locker. This is one of those pairings where it's hard to even think about these two in the same context. What parameters do you use for a zombie comedy, a landmark zombie comedy like Shaun of the Dead and then Catherine Bigelow's Hurt Locker, which in many ways redefined what a war film could be. There's there's just, they're too apart. They're too different. And I can't tell you why I went with The Hurt Locker, but I did. Hmm. I definitely went with Shaun of the Dead. These two films could be combined as surviving a war zone matchup. True. Hurt Locker was the winner of Best Picture and Best Director at the 2010 Oscars. Now, the notes tell me that it didn't make either of our top 10 lists in 2009. Is that definitely true for you, Josh? Yes. Okay. The Hurt Locker was my number four. So an oversight there. It was my number four film of the year. I obviously felt strongly about it then. I don't feel strongly about it now. It's just Hmm. one of those films that over time, I have had really no desire to go back and revisit or reconsider at all. And the fact is that list maybe can be thrown out, Josh, because as I look at it, I had lower on that list, the Coen Brothers, A Serious Man, and Olivier Assayas' Summer Hours, which is just wrong on both counts. So you can disregard that completely now. Shaun of the Dead was my number four film of 2004. I think it's hilarious. The bracket does need some more comedies. It's moving on for me. Yeah, those are good reasons. As I'm thinking about it some more, maybe why did I choose The Hurt Locker? Because looking back on my website, I've got them both rated three and a half stars for whatever that's worth. Um, You're right. Neither of them made my top 10, so I can't really look into that. But we've gotten... I don't even know if we've gotten as good of zombie comedies, but the genre has flowered and they've worked in similar ways to Shaun of the Dead. Again, maybe that one did it best. But I still think even as we've gotten more and more war films, as we've sat through more years of supposed war on terror, I think maybe that's why I do lean. I don't want to say it's the more important film. I was just going to say, because is that's it the I word? It's, it's, it's not just that. It's, it's more about the specifics I was mentioning. What I do consider the movie landscape now as compared to then, I want The Hurt Locker to be in it. Fair enough. My number five most difficult matchup includes a film that was a blind spot for both of us before Film Spotting Madness. You could actually argue that this entire Film Spotting Madness tournament was just a ruse to get me to set aside the time to finally watch Edward Yang's Yee Yee, a one and a two. And I did. I know you did as well. And based on what I saw in Letterboxd anyway, we had very similar reactions to it and both hold it in high regard. And it's going up against Brad Bird's The Incredibles, a movie that when I first saw it, I thought was fine, but definitely sort of second tier Pixar. That was my initial reaction to it. As I saw it again in preparation for Incredibles 2, I realized that, well, I was wrong. It's a really, really, really good Pixar film, and they have a lot of those, but it's certainly in that top tier. But Yee Yee is also just one of those films that just sort of quietly over three hours just builds up into something incredibly powerful, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Actually, Sam did out me a little bit. In our film spotting newsletter this week, he used a little bit from a Slack conversation we had this past Sunday night. Instead of watching the Oscars, I watched the rest of Yee. I had to split it into two parts. And there is an interesting connection to the Oscars and Roma. As I was considering, you have that young boy character, just like we have a young boy in Roma. And that's a stand-in for Coron. We know that. But he's so on the periphery of Roma, doesn't really play a role in the plot at all. He's just an observer, but 
we obviously know he's going to become the artist that Coron becomes, even though the movie may not give us any of those details. We do get some of those details in Yi Yi. We have to read into that, that that's the young Edward Yang who, in that little boy, gets a camera and provides these different and perhaps necessary perspectives on the characters that we otherwise wouldn't get. That's what that film ultimately does. So he takes a more literal approach to that, even if that character is maybe not one of the major characters in the film. He's clearly an important one. Yeah, it, it is more literal. That's that's for sure. But what's interesting, a uh, distinction between the two is that Quran is looking back at the actual time where he grew up, whereas Yang, it, it's contemporary set, Taipei. And he would be... He wouldn't have been that age, in other words. Uh, he's he's a little bit older. So I'm just, it's just interesting to yeah. think about transposing your memories of childhood, your experiences of childhood, including your ideas about art and how you began to think about that when you were young, but not using this specific era. Um, and yet at the same time, everything in Yi Yi is absolutely as authentic as anything in Roma. I think it feels the same way. Mm-hmm. It's as acutely observed. And you're also right. This is quiet. It's quietly unassuming and builds into something absolutely monumental. I might as well jump ahead on my list here. I actually had this pairing as my second hardest okay. uh, to vote on, The Incredibles. Against and I don't DE. know. I don't know and, where you're going. Well, the, I had a similar experience to you with The Incredibles. Loved it when it first came out. When we revisited again, I think I even said on Letterboxd something like, we didn't need another superhero movie after this because it's so good. It says everything you need to say about the genre. Now, I took that back a little bit when we also revisited The Dark Knight. But yeah, came to appreciate it even more. Here's where my Pixar guilt begins to build, Adam. Wow. I think this was an, a vote, an early vote against <laughs> Pixar. I went with Yee. I did as well. And obviously, that was a tough choice for both of us. I wonder if it will be similarly tough for our listeners or if more of them need to see Yi Yi. If they haven't already, maybe Madness will be the impetus for that. My number four toughest choice was Pan's Labyrinth versus Grizzly Man. And Grizzly Man almost did not make it into the tournament. It had to beat out Errol Morris and The Fog of War. Michael Green said, I just did my homework and watched Fog of War. Although it's incredibly insightful and a solid film, it doesn't hold a candle to Grizzly Man. Timothy Treadwell's story is fascinating and nothing beats the voice of Werner Herzog. Has to be Grizzly Man, no doubt. And that's where listeners came out. Another 70-30 decision for Grizzly Man. That was pretty easy for me to vote in, even though I love Errol Morris. The Fog of War is not one of my favorites of his films. And Pan's Labyrinth isn't a movie I probably talk about a lot here on the show, but I definitely had it in my top 10 of that year. It was my number three film of 2006. Grizzly Man was my number nine of 2005. So I just hold both of these films in high regard, and it's an extremely difficult choice. I did ultimately go with Grizzly Man because partly I want to see at least one documentary make it past round one. I'm not sure that's how it's going to play out, but because of my love for Herzog and the respect I have for the documentary genre, it's just going to edge out Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, the genre thing is interesting to think about in terms of madness, too, because we've already talked about how you want to see comedies on the list last, which I would agree with. And here you are voting for a documentary to give those another shot. That's definitely a factor. I mean, yeah. I can't say I wasn't I was probably affected in the area of animation, you know, seeing some of these Pixar films go down at my own hand. I'm thinking, oh, no, but I want animation to be represented. I can't represent 
documentary here, though. I do like Grizzly Man. Um, I voted for Pan's Labyrinth. I'm just too big a fan of Del Toro in general. And uh, Sam notes here that I had it as my number 10 film of 2006, which I feel guilty about when Hmm. I think about how many times people reference Pan's Labyrinth and the images and the way it influenced blending. The particular thing it did that other films have picked up is blend fantasy Mm -hmm. with a a historical slash realism and just bringing those two worlds together, our world and this imaginative world. Uh, I think it was really crucial in showing other filmmakers how that can be done well. Though Del Toro has really done that his entire career for the he most has, part. He has, he has. And I think that was, you know, maybe a breakthrough film mm-hmm. for him in terms of awareness for a lot of people of what yeah, he it was, was for doing me. and how he perfected it. So Pan's Labyrinth got my vote. Okay, so I think we're at your number four, Toughest yes. Choice, is that right? And we've already touched on it. Mulholland Drive versus Donnie Darko. Very boring reason here. Um, I know Donnie Darko better. I've thought about it more. I liked Mulholland Drive when it came out, but one of these where I was uh, either had a different vantage point or behind the curve, I haven't seen Mulholland Drive since. So you've only seen it once. So chances are, if I watched it again, I'd flip this vote, but I can only go with what I know. Yeah, it's one of those movies that I may not feel as strongly about it if I didn't watch it a second time a week after I saw it the first time. That crystallized so much for me. And then over the years, I've watched it at least a few other times because it was part of my Movies About Movies class at the Graham School here at the University of Chicago a few years back. My number three toughest choice, and this gets back to your beloved animation, Josh, WALL-E, which I think is my second favorite. I think I have it ranked second among all of Pixar's films, or it's at least in the top five going up against Pedro Almodovar's talk to her. And again, tough choice for a reason. It's pretty much a coin toss. But when I think back to the impact talk to her had on me when I saw it actually as part of our Almodovar marathon on film spotting many, many years ago before you joined the show, Josh, that was my best picture of that marathon. And the reality is when I'm making these tough choices, sometimes I do just ask myself, which one would I want to watch right now if I could rewatch one of those films? I may choose the beginning of WALL-E, but when you Mm -hmm. factor in the entire film, I'd really rather go back into that colorful, melodramatic world of Almodovar. That's fair, and I I like that criteria. Sometimes I lean on that myself. I didn't quite think about it that way in this matchup, which was difficult for me. I love Almodovar. Talk to her, yep, definitely up there as one of his better films, but WALL-E brings me back to the Pixar question that I did struggle with. With. It's interesting that uh, we had a poll question last year where we asked listeners which Pixar film should be the highest seeded in this year's Madness Tourney, and Wally is what they chose. Yeah. So that's it, why you guys ranked it, it that way. Yeah, so we did. I, I went with Wally, and there's maybe a little recency bias here, too, because I've been thinking about it. Quick plug I'm going to be doing uh, the Ebert Interruptus event again at the Conference of World Affairs at the University of Colorado Boulder. That's coming up in April. It'll be my third year doing it. We're actually doing WALL-E. This is the event that Roger Ebert established many, many years ago where you go through a film frame by frame, literally Mm -hmm. frame by frame. Anyone who attends can shout stop and they make an observation, ask a question. And so the first year I did Rushmore, second year I did Mad Max Fury Road. And some of us who think about the event, organize the event, were talking about what sort of movies, different genres deserve this treatment? And it was, everyone was like, animation. Of course, animation needs this scrutiny. And so we figured out, let's do WALL-E. Yeah, so yeah, I've been thinking pick. about WALL-E um, and maybe that's what pushed me over to, to go that way in this matchup. What's your number three? All right. My number three is oof, Lost in Translation, Sofia Coppola and 
Beau Travail. I'm shocked. Denis. I'm shocked. You're shocked that this because, was hired? Yeah, because I don't think we've ever had a conversation about Beau Travail. It hasn't come up really on the show, at least that I can recall. And I know how much you love Lost in Translation. Well, I thought I did, this would be easy. No, I did end up going that route. Again, recency bias. We just did a sacred cow on it. So it's fresh in my mind and it absolutely held up. But Beau Travail is one of those that I have not revisited since I saw it here in Chicago at the Music Box Theater. And it was an instance where uh, I was unfamiliar with Denis, but had heard it getting all of this talk. Maybe mm-hmm. it was at Cannes that year first. I don't know what the exact circumstances were. But going to see it and watching it and thinking, I've never seen anyone see film this way before. The person behind the camera. Um, it, it just was capturing imagery in a different way, making uh, making me think about different elements that movies had maybe often mm-hmm. considered, um, but just from this absolutely unique perspective. So th- it's almost one where I have that memory in my head so strongly coming out of it, like this is a filmmaker I've got to know about that I don't want to revisit it in some yeah. ways. Um, I'd love to preserve it for the rest of this tournament. But yeah, I did go with Lost in Translation hmm. again, having just seen it recently. This was really easy for me, Lost in Translation over Beau Travai. And I freely admit it's just because of ignorance, mainly when I think about Denise's work. I've seen three or four of her films, but especially this award season and following Barry Jenkins on Twitter, he talks about Denise and her films all the time. I think Barry Jenkins oh, makes so much sense. believes that Denise, along with Wong Kar Wai, are yeah. the two greatest filmmakers of our time. And he probably isn't wrong, but I didn't have that experience watching it at the theater. I watched it at home. I probably went in with too high expectations, considering the acclaim for it. And also, I knew it was a reimagining of Billy Bud, which is material, the Herman Melville story, but also the Peter Ustinov film that I love. So for some reason, I didn't connect with it when I watched it at home. I need to revisit it for sure. But having just seen Lost in Translation recently, as you said, it was a pretty easy choice for me. That makes so much sense. I didn't know that about Jenkins. But yeah, now that you say that, I knew the Wong Kar Wai influences, but yeah. can absolutely see that. In he can films. talk about Claire Denis. My number two toughest choice And so far, based on the way the voting is going, it should be one of the toughest choices. Brokeback Mountain versus Finding Nemo. So Pixar coming up here again, four films in the tournament. You had Nemo as your number two film of 03. I had it at number five. I think I do place Nemo as my number one overall Pixar film. And I've said it before, it may be due in some part to nostalgia and it being the first film that my firstborn child just watched all the time and i watched it with him and never got tired of it brokeback mountain meanwhile your number two film of 05 and my number five so again we rank them similarly in their respective years i love both films when i first saw the bracket my instinct besides skipping it which i did because i just didn't want to have to make a choice my initial reaction was to go with brokeback mountain because of the importance factor Mm. The I word. I thought it was a more important, significant film, but I just can't imagine if I apply the other film spotting badness test to this, which is the losing film is getting thrown in an incinerator and you never get to watch it again. I don't want to imagine having grandchildren someday and not being able to watch Finding Nemo. Adam, are you going to make me confess this? Am I going to have to talk about this? Yeah. You're going to make me... How did you... How you're going to make me separate Marlon and Nemo. How did you try to kill Nemo for a second time? <laughs> oh, well, this is terrible. You did it, though. You pulled it off. You're a murderer. I did it. I did it. Nemo's gone. <laughs> what? 
it. I'm going to, I'll gather well, your no, grandchildren I'm around them. the campfire and I'll tell them the tale <laughs> of this cute little fish. I can see uh-huh. them looking at me with those bug eyes right You're now. You're a monster. What are you doing? No, Brookback's so good though. It's so good. I had them, as you said, equally ranked um, in the respective years they came out on my top 10 list. I had them both at number two um, for whatever that's worth. Yes, I'm with you, Nemo, at the top of my letterbox list of Pixar films. I think this is a case of knowing that Pixar had other okay. shots okay. in the tourney. Th- that's maybe the only reason I could do it. Um, and knowing that, you know, I've got Wally still in this. Personally, I voted for Wally. Personally, I voted for Ratatouille. So it, somewhat it's like, am I going to give a third Pixar film or am I going to go with Brokeback Mountain? Well, so you went with a robot with Brokeback and a rat over cute Nemo. Flush him. Okay, so was that in your top five toughest choices? It had to be, right? It's my number one. Okay, your number one. And we already heard your number two, which was Yee Yee, just beating out Pixar again. More Pixar. The Incredibles. Who am I, Adam? Who okay. am I? My number one that is also proving to be a tough one for listeners, a very close matchup, Brick, Ryan Johnson, mm-hmm. beloved here on Film Spotting versus Requiem for a Dream, the Darren Aronofsky film. Two very different movies about drugs matchup. Requiem. What was your number one film of 2000? Is that what the record says? That's what Sam says, but we know he could be wrong. It was my number five, according to Sam's research. Brick, you had it number four in 2006. I had it number five in 2006. So we both rated each of these films highly. And I did skip this one initially, kept going back to it, going back to it and considering it. Maybe it seems like film spotting has to go with Brick. Requiem for a while was in the lead here, I think, looking at Aronofsky fairly recently here on the show. Did we do our top five Aronofsky scenes? I think we did. That sounds right. And that made me look again at Requiem and realize just how great it is. But the inventiveness of Brick did just give it a very slight edge for me. Well, that I mean, I respect the choice. I voted Brick too, okay? But inventiveness, I mean, that's what Requiem was all about. Yeah, maybe ingenuity on a tighter budget is, okay. <laughs> is more accurate. Yeah, and there's, um, and I mean this in the best possible way, there's a cleverness to how Brick works. Yes. Um, that's distinct from Requiem. Yes. Um, I, the only excuse I can give here, because Sam's research is correct, I did have Requiem for a Dream as my number one film of 2000, is, um, well, maybe two things I, I'm thinking is it's what I've already talked about, the one-time that's element. It. No, so that is really it for me, too. It's, it's like I can't wait to watch Brick again and again and again yeah. as I still try to parse my way through it. But Requiem, I might be done other than occasional scenes. It was the film that inspired our top five one-timers list 13 yeah. years ago here on the show. Yeah, so that's – I don't know if that's fair criteria to use, but it's one that applied here for me. And the other thing is uh, Aronofsky is also a filmmaker, um, maybe like Fincher, I would say, that I've cooled a bit on in recent years. So that comes into play a little bit. Again, not fair to the particular film here, but we're grasping at straws for justification. And that's what I did yeah. in voting for Brick. That's why those were our top five hardest choices in round one of this year's Film Spotting Madness Best of the 2000s. We do have more matchups to get to. We will get to those and our picks next. Stay with us.
a universal language. I know a renegade soldier when I see one. Never occurred to me that one might come from above. You're listening to Film Spotting. Yes, more Film Spotting madness ahead. But first, that was Samuel L. Jackson in the trailer for Captain Marvel, the movie that opens wide next weekend. We do plan to have a review of Captain Marvel on next week's show. Intrigued certainly by the directors of Captain Marvel, Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden, who did certainly smaller films in Half Nelson, Sugar, and It's Kind of a Funny Story. We'll see what they bring to Captain Marvel, starring Samuel L. Jackson and, of course, Brie Larson. Next week on the show, we will get to our Film Spotting Madness first round results and take a look at those second round matchups. And we will discuss the third film and our John Cassavetes marathon, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, if we can figure out which version to watch. We're so behind. Oh with all this madness that it's taken multiple listeners to write in and say, Hey guys, by the way, there are two versions of this film. And I tried to wiggle my way out of it by saying, we're just going to watch whichever one's in the criterion set. Uh-huh. Guess what the answer is. They both are my favorite question to debate. Yeah. Which, which version, version to watch? And, Cause and, you're and even better to choose right and make everyone happy. Exactly. And even better when Sam responds to that thread with, a Reddit link. Well, that's we can when, go down the Reddit rabbit hole. That's when I knew Sam had lost his mind. <laughs> Very clearly. I think, as of right now, until someone tells us otherwise, we'll probably go with the 78 version. Is that the original theatrical release? I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I don't know how it could be. I don't know how it could be because the other one's 76. But in this well, case... See, now we've got a debate. I'm just saying, in this case, the record seems to be, or the conventional wisdom seems to be, that 78 is the version that is the actual version of the film, the one Cassavetes wanted, maybe? Well, that's what they always say. I know, but it seems to be different here. I looked at Reddit. I just skimmed oh, it. Oh, see? I skimmed it. Most people said 78, and Josh, stop arguing. I think it's the shorter one. <laughs> this is why you chose no, it. No, <laughs> no. I just thought you would appreciate I always, that. I always lean towards theatrical release. I know it's, it's no, just me like, too. it's a historical but document. S- there was some wrinkle Especially here. Especially for a marathon. There was some wrinkle here that made All this right, different. I'll watch one. You watch the other. It'll be Maybe great. Maybe so. Okay. Well, we <laughs> we'll probably saw happy. different versions of a woman under the influence. It sounds so like Why it. not? We will also finish the marathon in a couple weeks with 1977's opening night. All these titles are available to rent on various platforms or at your local library. See which version of The Killing of a Chinese Bookie they have available. More information about this marathon and all our past ones is at filmspotting.net slash marathons. So last week, we spent a few minutes lamenting the deaths of Albert Finney and Bruno Gans. Between recording that show and then tonight, we got news that the director, Stanley Donan, had passed away. He was 94, made his directing debut with Gene Kelly. Not a bad start. That was 1949's On the Town. He also made Royal Wedding with Fred Astaire and Jane Powell in 1951. Of course, best known for Singing in the Rain, again with Kelly. That was 1952. Other films in his career, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers from 54, It's Always Fair Weather, again with Kelly in 55, and then Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn and Astaire. It's it's interesting, Adam, we were looking for, we were in a musical mood and looking for something to watch as a family just around the time Donan passed. I don't think I had heard it yet, and Funny Face was on the list of potentials, lost out that night to Blue Hawaii. (laughs) The Elvis movie, which ah. we, so obviously some regret there. We'll be getting to Funny Face soon. Yeah. A few other titles real quick here in Donan's filmography. The Pajama Game, that was with Doris Day. Charade with Cary Grant, and then Two for the Road, 
with Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney. Yeah, and how, how about, about this that? note that Sam dug up? I'm sure it was everywhere, but we didn't know it. I don't think you knew it. Donan's widow, Elaine May. Yeah, did not realize that. Another marathon subject here on Film Spotting. Stanley Donan marathon. Can I throw that? Into well, I was the just going to say. I mean, looking how many at of those, those have titles, seen? I have only seen Singing in the Rain. I think that's embarrassing, but that's the only one I've seen. I think I'm in the same place. Yeah, no, I haven't seen Royal Wedding or On the Town or The Pajama Game. Funny Face. Donan should be on the list. Let's do it. Okay, we're going to bump him up into consideration anyway. Now, this isn't on our agenda for tonight, Josh. I'm going to hit you with a little bit of a surprise here. And I'm going to have to chastise our amazing producer, Sam, later for this. Or maybe he's just trying to send us a message and he hoped I would notice. But last week, I meant for us to have just a note or two in there about the Oscars. Not that we were going to devote a lot of time to it, but with them coming up, it just seemed like... How do you not at least acknowledge that the Oscars are this weekend? Probably should do that. We missed it. Didn't happen. (laughs) The Oscars, of course, went off Sunday night. They happened anyway. They did happen anyway without (laughs) us. It's amazing. I know. And here we are again looking at our lineup for this show. The Oscars have passed. Made a lot of news. Somehow, we weren't going to touch on it at all. We're going to touch on it. Because you can. I'm guessing you watch some of it. I wasn't joking. I really did watch Yee Yee instead of a second of the Oscars. And at first, I didn't even want to say that because it seemed like that kind of Alvy Singer smug nonsense where, you know, I'm going to watch real art while you guys uh-huh. are all watching yep. that popcorn claptrap. But were you live, the reality were you live is, tweeting Yee Yee, Adam, while I was live was slacking live it? I was live slacking oh, okay. it. No, I did feel bad though because someone added me to a list earlier. That day, earlier Sunday, you know how you see when someone adds you to a Twitter list? They added film spotting to a Twitter list for the Oscars. And oh, I was wow. like, oh, man, you're not getting anything. I <laughs> no, don't know film spotting <laughs> that very is, well. That is a black hole. You have nothing coming tonight. Adam was sitting there tweeting about Yee and tagging it Oscars 2019. <laughs> yeah, I could have. I should have. But no, I did skip the Oscars again because I pretty much always do. I just don't enjoy watching award shows. I wish I had a better answer than that. And as I did eventually see the results, and especially that best picture win, I did feel a little bit validated that I didn't waste my time. Well, I, you know, that's a little bit of a, a blinkered view because we watch the whole thing. We do every year. I, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, I don't put a lot of stakes into the winners, but there were some great encouraging wins Along the way to that final yes. disappointment is how I would put it. Mm-hmm. So it's, but it left, I understand the reaction because it obviously left a bad taste in a lot of film fans' mouths, especially who are feeling encouraged by some of the wins that Black Panther got for mm-hmm. production design and costume design. The, the costume design one is one I was particularly rooting for. Um, and then even, you know, to see Spike Lee get an Oscar, aside from an honorary Oscar, and whether or not you think the Black Klansman script was deserving over some of the other scripts, um, but it was just revealing to note, not good or bad, that as much of a firebrand as the guy is, Mm -hmm. and as much of a critic as he is, for very good reasons of establishment things like the Oscars, um, to see the elation when he actually won, and the sense of validation that clearly he feels um, by being honored by this body and that he felt rewarded and he deserves to be rewarded for his career. There was something really fun for me as a huge Spike Lee fan to see that. Um, And topped off with him leaping into the arms of Samuel Jackson was just a great moment too. So there was enough stuff like that to make it interesting. Um, I am curious, and maybe we have done this, but is there another time where the best picture winner 
was not really discussed at all on the show the year before. I know that mm. you spent like maybe a minute or two on Green Book at some I point did. during the award season, maybe yes. around, maybe it was before the end of the year, maybe it was around the Golden Globes um, wins it got. Um, so you hadn't mentioned that you saw it. I have obviously watched it and I, I, I you know, there's not much need to get into it here. I, I think it's it's gotten... Um, some of the criticisms have been overblown. I just think it's an incredibly dated movie with a very unfortunate lead performance. Um, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but have we ever, like, has that happened where a movie that is just not on our radar at all as a show? And obviously movies are for mm-hmm. all different people who have all different interests in them. Um, you know, like the, the King's Speech, maybe, I'm thinking Got of. Got a full review. And I was a big fan of that okay. film. So, so yeah, anyway. We'll it might have, have been Green Book. That, you know, we could, we could derail this show, and I don't want to, nor do I want to give Green Book more time. But I do disagree with you on Vigo to the extent that I actually think it shows just how good of an actor he is, that he could take that script and some of that direction and make that character as watchable as he does. Adam, come on, uh, come on. No, no Vigo's Adam. too good. Vigo's did too he, good. Did you don't have a, it in you. He gave you the free breadsticks, Adam. <laughs> come on. <laughs> he won you over with the free breadsticks. <laughs> Family. Okay. Pasta. Okay. Again, can again, I, can it's I have the my, writing. Can I have my Oscar? It's the writing. <laughs> I was glad he didn't win. Yeah, I could see that. Now, Regina King winning and a few others, yes, we're good. Olivia Coleman winning. I know we were both happy about yep. that, even though, I'm sorry, I hate to be a cynic here, but she shouldn't have been nominated for lead. I don't think that was the yeah, right that's category. Prob- you're probably right about if that. If you consider the That was favorite. a surprise, too. That was a genuine surprise. Hmm. She, had, she had a good speech. And another thing, you know, <laughs> our house loves doing is just the, the fashion watching. So speaking of Regina King, best yeah. dress. Best dress of the night in my book. I'll take Adam, your word for it, it. It was it was stunning. Okay. Well, we will end our Oscar recap on that note. Take this sinking boat and point it home. We've still got time. Raise your we get back to film spotting madness with the lovely sounds of Marquetta Urglova and Glenn Hansard from John Carney's 2007 film Once. 2007 very well represented in film spotting madness. Now, Once did have to beat out Dancer in the Dark from Lars von Trier in our play-in round in order to make it into the tournament. It did that with 66% of the vote to Dancer's 34%. Now, unfortunately... My Beloved Once has some pretty stiff competition here in its matchup with Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 1, which did beat out Kill Bill Volume 2 in our playing round to compete against Once. I don't know really where you're going to go on this one at all, Josh. I know you have some ambivalence towards Tarantino, so maybe that's why you may lean towards Once. This one didn't make my top five toughest, but it certainly wasn't an easy choice. Once my number seven film of 07, Kill Bill Volume 1, my number two film of 03. I love both of the films. I actually maybe think volume two is even better. So for me, Kill Bill is going to edge out once. Well, according to Sam's notes here, I love the symmetry of this. You had volume one, your number two film of 03 and volume two, your number two film of 04. Did you do that on purpose just to kind of balance things out? I wish I could say I did. Okay. Well, I do like that. Uh, For me, I am voting once. Uh, Good guess. And it's not really any sort of Tarantino bias here. I, I also like Kill Bill volume one. 
but uh, once is, I just hold it that much higher in esteem. I'm surprised to find it's not. It wasn't in my top 10 list of that year, but um, I, I just, I do love it a lot and certainly more than Kill Bill Volume 1. Okay. Our next matchup, one for me that does tip a little bit towards the easy side of the scale, Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous versus the winner of our comedy play-in, Anchorman, the legend of Ron Burgundy, did take down the 40-year-old virgin. I'm surprised, both because I wanted the 40-year-old virgin to win, but also because I picked it in our bracket challenge. I thought it would win between those two. It was close. Anchorman, 51% to the 40-year-old virgin's 49%. One of those two great comedies having to go up against Almost Famous, I think... We're probably going to split on this one. Am I right, Josh? No, I went almost famous. You did. Yeah. I, if 40-Year-Old Virgin had made it, which I also predicted, I got that one wrong too, uh, I think I probably would have voted for that over almost famous. But, um, you know, Anchorman is just one of those, it has some great scenes and great moments and great lines, um, but there's there's some dead air there. There's some dead air in Anchorman when you revisit it. Okay. Well, those are fighting words for 51% of Film Spotting Nation, and you may hear it. Our next matchup, Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away versus Noah Baumbach's The Squid and the Whale. Our producer Sam says it's the surviving the mess our parents made for us matchup. Spirited Away won Best Animated Feature in 2003 at the Oscars. It's the only Miyazaki film in Film Spotting Madness. He also made Howl's Moving Castle and Ponyo in the 2000s. A little surprisingly... To me and to Sam, Spirit Away, not on your top 10 for 2002. Josh, The Squid and the Whale, not on either of our top 10 lists for 05. Margo at the Wedding was the other Bombback 2000s release, and that definitely wasn't going to crack the top 64 for me. So, Squid versus Spirited Away, you're going Miyazaki, right? Yeah, I'm going Miyazaki. The only reason, I'm thinking I might not have seen Spirited Away in 02 in time to put it on a mm. top 10 list. Um, I didn't either in 02. Yeah, so I'm thinking that's probably the case there. Now, Bombach, Squid and the Whale is one of his that I I do like. I'm ambivalent a little bit about him as well, but this is definitely one of his that I do appreciate quite a bit, just not enough to knock off Miyazaki. Okay, our next one, I think, is an easier one for you. Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love versus Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York, the R.I.P. Philip Seymour Hoffman mm. matchup. Yeah, so Punch Drunk Love, you know, I've said before, it's my favorite Anderson film. Um, this is one I've foolishly left certain other Anderson films off top 10 lists in the past, but Punch Drunk Love, I had at number two in the year 2002. So there would be very few movies that would be paired up against it um, that could take it down for me. I voted Punch Drunk Love. I love Anderson's filmography so much that I don't think of this as one of my favorite Anderson films, but if Sam's research is correct... I had it as my number three in 2002, so obviously I did really like Punch Drunk Love, but my number nine film of 2008 was Synecdoche, New York, and that's one of those mysterious just enigmas of a movie that I want to watch and rewatch again, and I'm actually going with it over PTA. What about Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, the number four overall seed in this tournament going up against Gus Van Sant's Elephant? So I think Elephant is astonishing, really. And you could put the I word on this, too. Important, right? Increasingly important, relevant, speaking, you know, unfortunately, uh, to what we're facing every day more and more. Um, but Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which was my number one film of 2004, as we'll see when we get to some of these top 10 lists, you know, not all of my picks 
for the best films of the year look so great many years later. I'd still stand by some of them, but in the light of history, people might question them. I feel really good about this one, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's always uh, held, you know, a special place Mm -hmm. in my estimation, a very personal appreciation for this that I also think has a reputation beyond what I think of it that is justified. It's curious that it it doesn't come up very often on the show because it's in the Pantheon, the Film Spotting Pantheon. So it's off limits for our top five lists. I think it was there before I arrived Mm -hmm. on the show. And it's one of those funny things. We put them in the Pantheon and the purpose is, so we're not always talking about them. But then we go seven years without talking about Eternal Sunshine the Spotless Mind, which is kind of crazy. But that's why I got my vote here. Yeah, similar considerations for me. Elephant was my number three film of 03, but Eternal Sunshine is in the pantheon for a reason, and it gets my vote. This one was a little bit easier for me. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon went up against the winner of our superhero plan, Spider-Man 2 versus more recent superhero fare from the MCU, of course, Iron Man, Spidey taking down Iron Man 53% to 47% in that play. And now, you already killed poor Nemo in favor of Ang Lee. Are you going to give him your vote here as well with Crouching Tiger? I did. I had not thought about that. Mm. Um, Yeah, I'm still going to go with Crouching Tiger. Yeah, me too. And it's, it's as simple and probably unfair that we have plenty of superhero films, as good as Spider-Man 2 is. Maybe this will be a more interesting debate when we get to the 2010s, mm-hmm. perhaps. Um, but for now, to choose even one of the better ones over something as unique, yes. at least in American film. Sure. Um, which we're, you know, we have other foreign language films on this list, but it's dominated by American films. So to choose Spider-Man 2 over something as unique as Crouching Tiger, I could not do that. So I voted Crouching Tiger. Yeah, the Go Get em Tiger matchup. You see what Sam did there. Crouching Tiger was the number four film of 2004. Both of us, some crossover How about there, that? Josh. Okay, our next matchup is Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love. Here we go with two great foreign language films, and one of them has to go in round one. In the Mood for Love, which I think just missed being a top 10 seed, but could have been a top five seed in this tournament, going up against the Dardenne brothers, L'Enfant, which is The Child. Now, Josh, is this still a blind spot for you, The Child? You couldn't vote in this one. Couldn't vote. I but play, you I love play In by, the Mood for Love. Yeah, I play by the rules, Adam, so I did not vote, but it is very hard for me to imagine. Um, there would be very few films, I will just say, mm-hmm. that would make me vote for them over In the Mood for Love. Well, I like the Dardennes. I really like the child, but not more than in the mood for love. We move on to the memory and revenge matchup. This one, certainly more difficult for me. We have my number eight film of 2005, Cache, against my number two film of 2001 and your number six, Christopher Nolan's Memento. Yeah, this was a hard one. Uh, my reasoning here was simply that uh, Cache is Hanukkah, in my mind, who I've loved a few of his films and really wrestled and disliked other ones. But in my mind, Caché is him working at his best. Memento, great. Wonderful memories of seeing that film. And that's sort of like, whoa, what's going on that Nolan mm-hmm. would continue to do throughout his career? But he's kind of just getting started here. Yeah. As good as it is, um, when you put it up against something as assured um, and um, just purposeful in its intentions and the ideas it's thinking about, which Caché is, I've got to go with Cache. See, I would describe Memento the exact same yeah, way. Yeah, you could. Despite the fact that it's his first, and in theory, he's just getting started. And that's why I'm giving it the edge really? over Cache. And I love Cache. Don't get me wrong. 
again, a hard choice. Yeah, it does. But you're right. I'm it, giving the edge to momentum. It has all those elements, but it's just the polishing of them. It's just the yeah. the masterful control of them. Well, I, guess, I couldn't. Is what I'm I couldn't of. justify the tattoos without it. Got so it. that's why it gets my vote. More Christopher Nolan in our next matchup. He goes up against the winner of our ensemble crime comedy play-in, Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven, getting beat out by Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz. This was the closest play-in matchup. We're talking about, Josh, thousands of votes in this poll decided by fewer than 30. <laughs> Hot Fuzz, 50.83% to Ocean's Eleven's 49.17%. I think we got to share a little bit of the feedback here. Lisa Fuller in Hampton, New Hampshire says, I literally gasped when I heard this pairing. You cruel, cruel bastards. As much as I love Ocean's Eleven, Hot Fuzz is the gift that keeps on giving. I could watch it a hundred times and catch something new on every viewing. And for that, it gets my vote. Jog on, Soderbergh. Here's Aaron Teachman in D.C. I love Hot Fuzz and the dopey cop movies it's making fun of as much as the next person. But Ocean's Eleven is Soderbergh's masterclass on how to smuggle avant-garde filmmaking into a remake by telling people it's cool. The cast is cool. The heist is cool. That shrimp cocktail Rusty's eating is cool. No. It's so cool. That's a crutch. That's a pit crutch. It should skate into the tournament. So Aaron and I only disagree on Rusty's cool shrimp cocktail. Otherwise, I'm with him. I voted for Ocean's Eleven. Is this a... Brad Pitt bias or a shrimp cocktail bias? It's a Brad Pitt bias. Yeah, I, I love shrimp cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> but went with Aaron. Obviously, we were just slightly in the minority. Hot Fuzz winning this one, and it has the right now to compete against Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. Hot Fuzz for me, a somewhat overrated Edgar Wright film. Ooh, and I like whoa, and Adam. I like the movie. But The Prestige falls into that category again of movie that encourages and rewards revisits and that for me helps justify why it should win here for once you're you're gonna get some of the nasty notices here uh, calling hot fuzz overrated look I out am, but, look out but don't you think the same people a lot of the same people i'm really painting with a broad brush yes. here but don't you think a lot of them who love hot fuzz also probably love the prestige <sighs> this is going to be one where we get more comments like the one from lisa calling us cruel bastards it's possible and hey i'm with you hot fuzz not one of my favorite edgar wright films I think The Prestige is among Nolan's best. I know his other movies get talked about more, probably made more box office, I'm guessing. Um, but I think everything he does well is right there in The Prestige. Okay, we have a few more to get to. Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men against the winner of our horror play-in. Tomas Alfredson's Let the Right One In going up against Bong Joon-ho's The Host. This was an easy one for listeners. 80% in favor of Let the Right One In. I do think the right choice. But, man, Alfredson's got a tough haul here going up against Koran and Children of Men, a movie that I think could be kind of a sleeper if a movie that's one of the top 10 seeds could be a sleeper. It just feels like one of those films that really could go far. Yeah, maybe maybe some of that Roma momentum working for the film there. Um, you know, I was one of those in the 20% who voted for the host, so this is easy for me to go with Children of Men, my number two film of 2006, Sam tells me. <laughs> Here is where we get to some more cruelty. And it wasn't by design. You'll have to believe us. It wasn't intentional. The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford was a film that so many listeners lobbied for, just adding it to the short list of contenders that not only did Sam and I do that, but we ultimately decided to put in the list of 64 films that made the tournament. And then when we did our seeding, it turned out that it had to compete against the number three overall seed. The Dark Knight, a movie that got the Sacred Cow treatment last year in honor of its 10th anniversary. Your number five film of 08, my number 10. Neither of us put Jesse James 
on our top 10 list of 2007, though, again, that doesn't necessarily say much about the film because 2007 was one of the best cinema years ever. But there are listeners out there like Adam Grossman on Twitter. He already caught this. Many others are now just hearing it for the first time. They campaigned successfully to get it included. And then we put it up against the juggernaut of the Dark Knight, as Adam says. Oh, come on, guys. Really? Sorry, we did it. Well, I am glad that the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is getting some more attention here because it's a wonderful film. Really enjoyed this one when it came out, but its attention is short-lived. I'm voting Dark Knight. Okay. This is probably the last we're going to talk about it. Yeah, I need to see the assassination of Jesse James again, maybe more than any film in this entire tournament, but that didn't happen, and so I'm picking The Dark Knight. How about The Coen Brothers' A Serious Man versus M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable? It might have been the fact that we recently spent a fair amount of time talking about and praising Unbreakable when we split on Shyamalan's new movie, Glass. We also, we being Sam, and me also took a look at Letterboxd and saw just how many people had seen Unbreakable comparable to other films that we were considering and how many people had rated it highly. So we thought it might bode fairly well in this tournament. I don't know that it's going to pull out a victory over the Cone Brothers and A Serious Man, even as A Serious Man maybe isn't a movie most people think of on the level of No Country for Old Men. It is a movie I love, and it's my choice here pretty easily over Unbreakable, and I love Unbreakable. Yeah, I don't think Unbreakable is going to pull off an upset here. I don't know. Could be surprised, but... I'm doing a little uh, course correction in history in this vote because I'm among those who like A Serious Man but don't rank it as highly among the Cohen stuff um, and probably need to revisit that. Haven't seen it in a while. I think I probably underrated it a little bit. Yeah. Whereas as much as I still liked Unbreakable when we did do that glass review and talked about Unbreakable as well, I think I overpraised it at the time. There were some flaws huh. I saw, particularly that ending, which you know even bothered me the first time, but now even more so. So basically, all this to say, Serious Man has kind of risen in my estimation. Okay. Unbreakable Fallen, a little bit enough that I'm voting a Serious Man. Did I really say, and we're not going to take the time to go back and check the audio, did I say our split on glass? I think you did. <laughs> unintentionally. Completely unintentionally. You should have just left that unsaid so people appreciated your brilliance. I know. Instead, I had to call attention to my brilliance. <laughs> Welcome to Film Spotting. Scorsese's The Departed in our next matchup against Alfonso Coron's E to Mama Tambien. I really like that Coron film, but not as much as I love Children of Men, for example. It's not competing against Children of Men. It is going against The Departed, which was my number two film of 2006. I love it. Easy choice for me. Yeah, I, I think you summed it up for me as well. I am a fan of E to Mama Tambien, my introduction to Coron, um, but The Departed's just great. It's kind of irresistible, and it's Scorsese. Now, this one was an appropriate matchup. Inglorious Bastards going up against David Cronenberg's A History of Violence. Inglorious Bastards was my number one film of 2009. Nowhere to be found on your top 10. History of Violence, also a number one film for me. A chart topper for the year 2005. And guess what? That one also did not make your top 10. So do you dislike, I know we've talked about Bastards, but do you dislike both of these films or just not up to par with other films from those years? And how did you vote? No, really big fan of A History of Violence. And this is a fascinating pairing to me because, yeah, without rehashing all that, I think A History of Violence thinks about the very same things that Inglorious Bastards is just in a much more sophisticated way. So for me, this was an easy vote. There's a there's a big gap between these two films. Okay. Bastards just edges out 
a history of violence for me. And we get some more violence in Park Chanuk's Old Boy going up against the winner of the Spielberg play-in, Minority Report versus AI. Now, you were already predisposed to vote against Old Boy because you don't like the movie much. Not a fan. I do. But maybe you'll be inclined to vote for it over Minority Report if you feel like you need to get some revenge on everyone who picked Minority Report because with 72% of the vote, AI, a movie you love, yeah. did not make the final list. History has been turning my way ever so slowly since AI came out, but not quickly enough, apparently. People still think Minority Report, which is very good, is a better film than AI, which is just not true, I'm afraid. But no, I'm not going to hold that against it because... Yeah, I've got issues with Old Boy. Old Boy issues over here. So yeah. um, I'm going to have to go Minority so Report. So I don't have issues with Old Boy or that entire Vengeance trilogy. But what do you do with a person like me who thinks both Minority Report and AI are second-tier Spielberg? Well, <laughs> not much. There's not much worth considering that opinion, Adam. I'm, I'm, <laughs> just move along. Okay. Well, we'll move along to our final matchup of Film Spotting Madness Round 1. City of God, directed by Fernando Morales and Katya Lund, versus the winner of our Lord of the Rings play-in. We did pit The Fellowship of the Ring versus The Return of the King. Not very close. 67% of the vote going to The Fellowship of the Ring. So as we pit it against City of God, Josh... How did you vote? Well, this gave me pause. More difficult. You know, we kind of gushed over Fellowship of the Ring. Yes, I said we, Adam. You, yeah, you we did. I loved. I'm full of surprises. Tolkien. Yeah, I know. That was great. Highlight of last year. Uh, but yeah, this was hard because City of God, I, I really went for it. I remember when it came out, I think Gangs of New York, Scorsese's Gangs of New York must have been either the same year or right around the same time. Because I remember talking about City of God, I felt doing the things that... Um, Gangs of New York tried to be yeah. just so much better. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a great film. But um, Fellowship is, you know, just one of those sort of personal landmarks for me, one that I'd been looking forward to since uh, it was announced. It actually met those expectations and then some. And, uh, you know, I know we're not voting for the other films, but proved to be a trilogy worthy of itself as well. So mm-hmm. I went Fellowship. So I was affirming that City of God did come out the same year as Gangs of New York. I don't think it's a better film, but City of God is on that list along with the assassination of Jesse James of films, I feel like I really need to watch again to fully appreciate. Remember seeing it in the theater, remember liking it, also remember not feeling like it was one of the 50 or 100 best films of this decade, and a lot of people do feel that way about it. So I think this may be a little bit closer than we think, even if I think Fellowship is ultimately going to win. And because of the Sacred Cow treatment we gave to Fellowship and all three films in that trilogy, it's a pretty easy choice for me. We open this madness with a listener weighing in on the first matchup. We're going to end with the same listener weighing in on the last matchup. Here's Jeff Milo again. Oh, man. Um, Fellowship of the Ring versus City of God. Haters are going to hate, but I'm not going to vote for Fellowship here. I know it deserves it. Uh, but City of God came out right when I was in the midst of my, um, my minor in film studies, and it was just so visceral because it didn't stand alone. While fellowship for me requires, you know, awareness of the end of its arc to really feel it. Um, so City of God, the danger and the urgency and the real world stakes that gets my vote. Um, and I say this kind of cynically because I, I get the feeling fellowship will move on without my vote anyway. So fly, uh, you fools. Well, Jeff did use the word stakes there. So maybe now I have to rethink my choice and go with City of God. We can't wait to see how the voting comes out for round one. No, literally. We can't wait. Sam and I will be hitting refresh 
for, well, basically the entire weekend. The polls are live. As we get through each round, they will go live every Friday at midnight, so late Thursday night, and then they will close the following Monday at noon. So I know some of you listen to these shows, you get them as a podcast and you store them up, but if you want to play along with Film Spotting Madness, you really do have to listen to them on time or at least visit the website filmspotting.net slash madness. You can also follow us on Twitter at filmspotting to get the latest updates. And if you aren't already a subscriber to the Film Spotting newsletter, that's where you get your first look at the bracket and get the first shot at voting. That goes out pretty much every Monday at noon. And per listener request, Josh, I've created an easy landing page for the newsletter. It's now filmspotting.net, you'll never guess, slash newsletter. No longer episodes. Some people weren't hearing us point them to slash episodes. Yeah, a little confusing. And, you know, that's a little confusing. Filmspotting.net slash newsletter is where you can get that early access. And who wouldn't want that? All right. While listeners head over to the website and register their votes, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment with the second film in our John Cassavetes marathon, A Woman Under the Influence. Stay with us. Every morning, and please, they give you a shot. Please, Mabel, and, uh, don't talk then the about nurse those things, takes please. you to the toilet, and they uh, then you uh, go to uh, uh, work therapy where they teach you games and and how to weave things, and uh, they give us shock treatments, which are those are where electricity goes through your head and is supposed to. Yourself. Be yourself. Peter Falk giving advice to his wife, Gina Rollins, in 1974's A Woman Under the Influence. Falk plays Nick, a construction worker. Gina is Mabel, a mother of three, who I guess we could say has a breakdown that compels Nick to take pretty drastic action to, depending on how you view Nick, either save his marriage and family or fix his broken wife. The film was nominated for two Oscars, Best Actress for Rollins and Best Director for John Cassavetes, as we will throughout this marathon. He's not getting paid, but certainly he knows by now that there's an expectation. We're going to get a voicemail every week of this marathon from Nathaniel Myers, the professor, just as he was so nice to do during our recent Vincent Minnelli marathon. He just does a great job of contextualizing these films and setting up our conversation. Can we give him a T-shirt? Have we given him a T-shirt yet? I think he might have bought one. So do we feel even, extra guilty even now? more embarrassing. We could give him another color. Nathaniel, we'll send you another color. There Just tell go. us which one you want. Let's go ahead and hear from the professor on A Woman Under the Influence. 
Hello, Film Spotting. So, of all the films included in this marathon, I think A Woman Under the Influence is arguably Cassavetti's most well-known, and possibly his most well-regarded. Roger Ebert, I know, once made the claim that A Woman Under the Influence was, quote, perhaps the greatest of Cassavetti's films. Of course, in many ways, this is as much Jenna Rowland's film as it is Cassavetti's. And I'll be interested in hearing what you guys ultimately think of her performance. But for now, I'll say, what struck me while watching was not simply her performance, but also how much the film seemed to be interested in performance in general, in the ways we have to perform for others. I'm thinking about, for example, the way Roland's Mabel seems to try out various roles throughout the film. Roles such as the doting wife offering to make spaghetti for this sudden onslaught of her husband's co-workers into the house. Or that stunning moment when she seems to almost rehearse her anger and frustration when the guys leave the house after Nick, her husband's outburst, almost as if she's trying to feel her way into her emotions. Or I'm even thinking about Peter Falk's Nick, who, upon Mabel's return from the house after a six-month stay in the institution, insists that everyone just, quote, have normal conversation, as if everyone has to play their part in maintaining a facade of normalcy that just never existed in the first place. In fact, I think it's Mabel, ironically, who is the only one who's able to puncture that facade throughout the film. Uh, Not only in her small cries of help that come out time and again, like in that devastating moment when she asks her oblivious father to stand up for her, but also in the way her character, I think you could argue, ultimately plays the role of parent much better than her husband. She may be tone-deaf in terms of what role she tries out when, but she doesn't seem any less tone-deaf than Nick, or his mother, or the doctor, and her struggle to find the right roles in the right moment comes off, at least to my eyes, as far more sympathetic. Josh, the elephant in the room is the review you posted earlier this week on Letterboxd, which, um, shall we say, inspired some lively debate. And while I won't attempt to speak on your behalf, I will say that I think I understand where you're coming from, especially in the ways Cassavetes may be wielding mental illness and Mabel herself to make whatever point it is he is making, whether it be about the way you perform or not. So I'm excited to hear you elaborate on your thoughts and Adam to find out where you land on all this. And for what it's worth, you can at least take some comfort, Josh, in knowing that While, yes, the perfect Rotten Tomatoes score for the film has been marred by just one review, this time it's not yours. All right, thanks, guys. Nathaniel Myers, thank you as always. That's why I like Nathaniel so much. We do very often, Josh, see films similarly, and we will get to some talk about the performance aspect of A Woman Under the Influence, and not just the performances themselves, but the way performance is a key to everything we see in this Cassavetes film. But I want to dive in and address, as Nathaniel did, that elephant in the room, even if it's only an elephant for the 27 people who saw your letterboxed review of A Woman Under the Influence. Now, I did see your four-word letterbox blurb and the replies to some of the comments before I watched A Woman Under the Influence, and this was actually a rewatch for me. I don't remember when exactly I saw it, but I have seen this movie before. And so I went in fairly critically, actually. I feared that I missed something that on this revisit was going to emerge, and I was now going to have a mixed or negative reaction to a film I previously had a very positive experience with. I was sure. I was giving you the benefit of the doubt, Josh, even after all these years. You never thought that. No, I really genuinely did. I thought (laughs) 
whether I appreciated the movie more in the end or not, at some point, watching a woman under the influence, I was going to think to myself, you know what? I hear what Josh is saying, and he's not completely wrong. And listeners, that moment never came. Shocking. (laughs) Shocking. It never came. So no one's buying this. Keep in mind that, as I said, that was with the knowledge of only four words and a couple of comments in my mind. I didn't get to hear you elaborate on your thoughts on this film. You now have the forum to do that. Yeah, well, for the sake of those 27 people, and I'll have to look into paid promotion on Letterboxd to try to bump those numbers up, see what I can do. (laughs) But, um, you know, I don't want to get bogged down in star ratings or rankings or, I mean, goodness gracious, if Rotten Tomatoes fresh rotten metric was ever exposed to be pointless it's in regard to a film like a woman under the influence right Um, but i would love to get into a discussion here about the major question i had with the film and it's related we can start right where you want to it's related to nathaniel's observation about performance he's right um and the film is fascinating to watch on those terms i'm very mixed on this movie i mean it's going to be more fun to bring out the pitchforks and claim that i hated it but uh, I'm, i'm really mixed on what's going on here i think at the end of the day what i was wrestling with what gnawed at me is that this interest in performance that to me is first and foremost it's why i i you know said to me this is mental illness as theater um i think the interest in performance restricts the film in a lot of ways, limits it in a couple of ways. And what what I mean by, I probably don't have to sell you on the fact that the film is theatrical and interested in performance. It sounds like you accept that sort of premise. I don't think you have to. And, and we may have different definitions of that that but we I can get into. But I accept it as it relates to what I think the film is ultimately exploring. Okay. So we'll have to touch yeah. on that. Yeah, that'll be good to get into. But it's certainly a performative um, film. Um, you know, th- things are staged for maximum drama. There's a rehearsal vibe to it, which we've also sort of described when it came to faces, a looseness here of mm-hmm. performances, finding character in the moment. And these are all qualities of theater. That's what brought this to mind. You know, the bottom line for me, and this is separate from what Rollins is doing, is I did not think it ultimately worked in the service of allowing dignity to Mabel as a character. And again, I don't think it's anything Rollins is doing. It's more how the film is using this very um, heightened performative turn that we're getting. And when we bring up Nick, um, Peter Falk, you know, we see other sides of him. Um, We see him at work. We see him interacting with other people. We only see Mabel at rock bottom or, or spiraling down that way for sure. And I did end up asking myself towards the end of this film, as this continued to be a pattern, is, um, What's the point of only seeing a mentally ill person uh, at their low point, you know, at their weakest? Uh, What are we learning there about them? And I think that is, again, stressing the limitation of the film that resulted in my mixed reaction to Mm -hmm. it. You know, I just the only way I can put it, and maybe I was biased by having recently watched Ordinary People and discussed it. We did last week's show, top five movies about suburbia. There's that scene with Timothy Hutton and Mary Tyler Moore in the backyard. And uh, he's trying to connect to her. Uh, He's the depressed son. She's his repressed mother. He can't get her to pay attention to him. And he just starts yapping like a dog. They've been talking about Mm -hmm. the former dog they have. And he just yaps away at her. And it's this moment of like craziness. You know what we would term craziness. That's a good comparison, yeah. Uh, And it struck me like ordinary people... We see scenes with Timothy Hutton's character and and the counselor, the mm-hmm. therapist. We see another side of him. We see scenes with classmates. We've seen scenes of him talking to his dad, and they add up to a distressed human being. 
I think the way I put it is just that a woman under the influence struck me as Mabel just yapping away hmm. the whole film, which is fascinating to a degree, impressive in terms of a sustained performance, especially given these long takes. But I would just say not bad, not wrong, but I guess limiting is the word I'd, I'd use to try to kind of temper some of the, you know, astonishment at someone not coming out of this completely enthralled. Hmm. I guess I do hear a little bit what you're saying, Josh. There's certainly that split by design with the film. And if that doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. But I think where the dignity does come in, and I will say, first of all, you're not wrong to say what you did about Nick and the different sides we see of him, though I don't know that we see... <laughs> a too complex portrait of Nick. This is an old school guy who thinks the answer to everything is to shout at it and occasionally hit it. And this film, similar to Faces, is very much an indictment of masculinity. And I think that that does tie into where I see the dignity coming in. My response to you would be, I feel like this is a film that very clearly picks a side. And that side is Mabel's. Before I really get into that, though, I wanted you do expand on something that you said in your comments, because I think it's kind of crucial. You replied to someone saying that you thought that Cassavetes presents emotional instability, Mabel's emotional instability as a stage. What did you mean mm -hmm. by that? Yeah, I think that goes back to um, thinking about, for example, an early dinner scene where Nick does come home. And I agree with everything you said about Nick. I, I think um, he's clearly abusive and this isn't an instance for me of the movie choosing him over her. Sure. So I agree with that. But I, I think that dinner scene is a stage for Mabel's mania. An audience has been arranged. And there are a couple of scenes like this to watch her at first act a little odd, then get increasingly uncomfortable. And then until there's an explosion, mm -hmm. um, a, a big dramatic moment, and um, Nick you know, goes off on her and we've got that theatrical element there in the scene. And I think a number of the scenes play out that way. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but it's sort of um, a recurring trajectory that we watch in the film. And so absolutely we've been immersed in the experience of what, I guess what I would say is we've been more immersed in the experience of what it might be like to watch someone like this from the outside than to feel what it might be for them on the inside. Yeah. And for me, that's the way Cassavetes is choosing to explore her condition. And that's really what I think it is. And I don't mean her condition in terms of the mental illness itself. But that influence of the title, I think, is a reflection of her circumstances and surrounding. And I think that, you know, you said as a stage, and you mean literally the the stage almost is what we're going to talk about, the performance aspect to this. There are a lot of elements where I think she is precisely expected to perform. And that's the problem. She's expected to perform a certain way as a mother, and she can't do that. But every person around her, especially her husband and her mother-in-law, seem to have the sense that her instability is something that she can overcome and that mm. it should just be treated. She can go away for six months and come back and she'll be fine. That this isn't something more serious that we shouldn't recognize as being more of a consequence of what is expected of her. And it's not something that can be easily fixed. And I think the critique there comes in the form of the fact that 
these people, especially the two I just mentioned, proved to be exceedingly unhelpful and wrong about pretty much everything yeah. throughout the film. So I think he is critiquing that sense for sure. And I think what Cassavetti sets up instead is emotional instability as this state, this condition of modern life specifically for women, one that doesn't have a clear beginning or a clear end, sadly. And I don't even think emotional instability is the condition, or it's at least not the cause of the condition. I think what Cassavetes is really getting at is the repression and stifling of one's individuality. And that's certainly something we see come through in the mania, in some of those more manic moments from Mabel. I don't think the fact that Cassavetes chooses to not ever name her condition or provide someone offering any kind of diagnosis or really us ever seeing her get treated as him disrespecting her condition maybe or just being lazy as a filmmaker. I think it's by design because once you go down that path, this becomes then a movie about mental illness very explicitly. And it becomes also very explicitly a movie about the way society treats or mistreats people who have mental illness. And that's just not the film we have before us. It's not what Cassavetes cares about. I do think what he's ultimately more interested in is that expression. And it goes back to last week's top five. You mentioned ordinary people. I didn't expect that top five list. It was random that we ended up doing it at the time this marathon started, but I didn't expect it to so perfectly set up these Cassavetes films. And we talked specifically with Jessica Harper last week about the way people and a lot of these waspy suburban environments growing up feel as if they can't express any emotion whatsoever, that they almost have to be automatons. And I think that's what's expected of Mabel here. In fact, she says when she comes back, she's talking to her kids and she says, no emotions. I can't show any emotion. She understands that's what's expected of her. And I think that for me, Cassavetes isn't suggesting that what happens to a woman or to women who are married for a long time and they have the burden of these societal expectations placed on them, that they go crazy and that we have to explore that craziness. It's that they lose their identity and they then can no longer navigate those expectations. And we should examine the circumstances that cause that loss. We heard it in the clip coming into the segment, actually. Sam chose the key line for me, be yourself. <laughs> Nick telling Mabel to just be yourself. You can see in Roland's performance the, the paralysis and the desperation on her face when he says that. How do you be yourself if you no longer have a self? I think that's the fascinating question at the core of this movie. Yeah, I want to return to that be yourself line in a minute. But um, and first off, I don't I don't need her illness to be explained. That's not yeah, what I'm no, that's not what I'm looking for. I would agree Cassavetes is on her side. Um, I think that was one of the rewarding viewings of faces is realizing how the camera was on the Rollins character side there. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know definitely understood what she was going through or wanted to understand it and searched for moments that allowed that gave us an in towards that understanding. I think he may be so much on her side here or at least on Roland's side on the side of Roland's performance that it's um indulging isn't the wrong word because again I'm not particularly critiquing the performance here mm -hmm. but but it's almost by putting this in center stage some other things get lost. So yeah, I don't need it to be explained. What what am I what am I looking for then? Maybe another way of describing this is and something I realized later is that Mabel always has an audience. I mentioned the 
the mm-hmm. dinner of coworkers, um, her extended family when they right. come in. Um, they're an audience for her as well. Even her kids. There are scenes that I yes. can see some people saying, you know, this is where we see another side of her. But but to me, they played more as like, here's another audience for them to react to how unstable she's acting. There is an exception. The movie kind of clarified for me, at least my trouble with it clarified for me, as things often do when you see an exception and you say, yes, mm-hmm. this is what I want. And it's a very small scene, but it's where she's waiting for them to get off the school bus. Right. This is set on a busy street. She's all by herself. She's away from her home, crucially, um, one of the rare instances. And she does encounter a few people passing by. Who think she she's crazy. Yes. Yeah, she I mean, frantically asks for the a time. A menace on the street is how they view her. They ignore her. Yeah. You know, she's like, what's with this woman? But those are just brief interactions. Otherwise, she's pacing back and forth. And the school bus comes around the corner. And interestingly, there's this moment in Bo Harwood's score. Mm -hmm. He drops a music cue. As it's either as we see the bus or as we see her face. Mm -hmm. We definitely see this moment of elation on her face. Uh, And we're there with her. We're it's distinct from the other scenes in that we're not part of the on-screen audience watching in confusion or horror or nervousness. It's just us and her. And the music lets us in on her emotions. And we suddenly understand. We see that she's acting a little, you know, fidgety mm-hmm. as she does often. But we also understand why. It's We get how important this role of motherhood is to her mm-hmm. and how she genuinely feels distressed when those kids are away. Yes. And, and for me, that was a, um, a distinction from so many of the other scenes where she's more on stage. Huh. Yeah, and I guess I feel like I see some of those more subtle moments within those more manic, higher-pitch moments. But let's talk about that performance aspect a little bit more in detail, because Nathaniel's exactly right. The first time I cued into it is in that first fight, all those silent gestures and the mouthing of words, where you do recognize that, okay, on some level, she's she's rehearsing. She's, she's practicing what she's going to say or yeah. what she thinks she's supposed to say in this moment and how she's supposed to react. And then the key line where you really just get the full sense of it is at the end of that first fight when she says, I'll be whoever you want me to be. She's saying, stay with me. Don't reject me. I'll play whatever part you want me to play. And later, and I won't get into all the lines because there's so many of them, but I think it's when she comes home and she says, how am I doing? Am I doing it right? As if she's looking to Nick as the director saying, am I playing the part the way you want me to? Not only is he the director, he's the writer at that dinner table scene. He blows up at everyone at the end and says, normal talk. How are you? Where you been? Hello. Too hot, too cold. He's trying to script out for them the moments he thinks a quote unquote normal family should be having. And he's a pretty bad writer. Let's say that for the record. But there is even that element of performance on stage the way. She almost appears from behind the curtain in that scene. The family's waiting for her in one room. She goes backstage to talk to her kids, to have this private conversation with her kids in the dining room. And then she emerges from behind the curtain. She opens those sliding doors and comes out and she has to perform. And you see the way the audience, just like a theatrical crowd, is looking at her, judging her studying every move and gesture, waiting for something to happen. And this isn't a surprise that Cassavetes knows what to do with the camera after we saw faces, right? I think this sense that maybe I even had going into this marathon that I was going to see just camera work all over the place, handheld. If he captured moments because he had the camera in the right place, he was lucky to get it and he was rolling on it. Well, no, this is all by design. And he is very calculated in the shots he's getting. And how about the way during... 
those dining room conversations with the family, he shoots most of it in a wide shot behind her so that we don't see her face, but we see that circle, that semicircle that's around her who is looking at her the whole time. We're always looking at how the audience is reacting to her, and you feel the pressure of that, the suffocation of that moment for her, having all those eyes be on her, studying her every move. And how about the fact that Nick is this guy who thinks that somehow in this moment, multiple times, these moments that should be these private moments together, he brings a ton of people over to go through it somehow with this crowd. For me, Josh, it suggests that he thinks his wife is someone who should be on display. She's someone who is supposed to perform. He even says, you know, she's not crazy. She sews. She cooks. In other words, she does certain things that the suburban housewife is expected to do. So she must be okay. The way I guess I sum it up is that Mabel, as a character, is an actress whose marriage and family rest on her ability to play her part as the middle-class suburban housewife properly. And the tragedy ultimately is that sometimes she can nail it. Sometimes. But most of the time, she not only doesn't know her lines, every instinctual choice she makes is wrong. So for me, that fits back with everything I was saying about this condition. I don't see how you can separate that performance aspect. The fact that she is constantly being forced to do it is what ultimately leads to her instability. Yeah, I guess, you know, for me, it's a matter that all of these sort of meta touches and echoes are definitely interesting theoretically. And certainly when you put into play their off-screen relationship and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I go back to to feeling like it was limiting at the level of understanding her maybe as a human being. But I see all of that work. I think it's very intentional. And, you know, if that was the ultimate goal, they certainly pulled it off. And, and I think Rollins, as I said, is is absolutely attaining what she's going for. And it's something that's very impressive. Uh, a distinction I would make from Faces and they're different characters. I understand that. But, you know, in Faces, the character had to find her, Jeannie, uh, who Rollins played. It was always looking for her. And and those wonderful moments that um, did feel in the moment, but as you rightly said, are planned and staged. It was kind of like, we see Jeannie in a vulnerable moment here and we just caught her because she's not looking for the camera. Now, again, Mabel's entirely different, but everything is done for the camera. There are those moments, as you mentioned, where her back is to the camera, but there are also the ones where, you know, Falk is in the foreground guiding the conversation with his kids or someone else. And we see Mabel doing the, yes, as you described, rehearsing in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also is all being done for the camera. So it's more playing into this um, performative idea. Sure. Absolutely. Sometimes at the periphery, though, like it's, you just described in the background. It's technically in the background. Is, is what I would say. But it's also more performance, especially when you consider there's that little bit I talked about in the Faces review where the, the camera kind of zooms in to catch mm-hmm. Jeannie uh, crying in another room. Whereas here, if, you know, when Mabel is in the other room, she's the focus. That's intentional. That's who yes. she is at her height of mania. Yes. Just would have liked to see her in other moments like at the bus stop as well would have fleshed this out for me a little bit more. I did want to go back to, you mentioned the be yourself comment. Um, and yeah, the Nick character is, is endlessly fascinating. He too. Is. I mean, he's, he could be suffering from something as well. Very likely he is. That's undiagnosed. <laughs> it's called being a man in <laughs> nah, the 1970s. Well, I, I mean, and yes, maybe this is a critique of masculinity. Absolutely. But I think the guy in some ways is putting on a better veneer 
of um, the idea of holding up those roles he's supposed to be maintaining as well. So I think the be yourself moment, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. is when she comes back home yes. from staying and they're on the stairs yep. and it almost, there's some weirdness going on there that yeah. this isn't a critique. It's me just trying to understand where right. he is telling her to play the housewife role. But then he kind of shifts and goes, he starts mimicking the mannerisms she did when she would become unhinged. As this if he's little, trying like, to encourage her to embrace to embrace the her mania madness. and the instability. I what agree. Is going on there, I agree that that's a fascinating conundrum. I yeah. had the same reaction to that scene. At the same time, when you watch every other thing he says and does after that, including his insanely, oh, yeah. it's not of insanely a violent usual yes. moment. I do think ultimately that I think that ambiguity is exactly what Cassavetes wants us to see in it. That yeah, I'm just whether, wondering what's yeah, there. whether for a second he was actually saying no, go ahead, let it out, do what you want to do. The reality is, Cassavetes wants us to see the ambiguity of that. Imagine it from Mabel's perspective when all he's constantly doing is telling her the opposite, and then in that moment he might seem to be yeah saying go ahead. It doesn't really make any sense. I think her confusion in that moment is really probably what matters the most. How do you be yourself? Yeah. That that's it. And an act of desperation, you know. He's this is the moment where it was all supposed to be solved. Right. Uh, and it's not working, so maybe he's just grasping at any straws and maybe if right now I tell her, you know, just do whatever you want, that'll solve it. Maybe things. so. And I'm not saying this in any way makes me sympathize with him, but I did realize that his reaction, those violent outbursts and all of the shouting really is probably coming from a place of shame. It comes from this sense that as the man of the house, he should be able to fix this, that however he has to do it, just by establishing law and order, everything should fall into line. And maybe not unlike, to an extent, Mabel's character, he's also expected to play a certain role. Sure. And he's failing in that role. And so his shame drives his actions. Yeah, well, there's the whole element of infidelity as well, which is skirted around by him, but never fully acknowledged between the two of them. And and I'm referring to hers. Right. Where you get the sense he knows what's going on, but wouldn't name it because it would you know be another element in this so whole cycle of him not being able to hold up this veneer of the perfect home. And, then, mm-hmm. you know, that beach scene is interesting, too, with Nick, where he yeah. drags the kids to the beach I know. and he's going to force them to have a good time because that's what families do at the beach. And he takes a friend with him and the friend who's just kind of, you know, whatever you want, Nick, we'll, we'll make this work, Nick. That's a real human sequence, too, where uh, we see other hints of him trying. We see that he's has terrible judgment. We see that he has yes. these fatherly instincts yes. somewhere buried down in right. there. Um, he's impulsive like me. Yeah. Yes. is he does have affectionate intentions and it's just this messy ball of a guy who i think you know is as we've been saying is dealing with a lot of the same societal pressures that that mabel is yeah what's driving that impulse to connect with his kids there on one level you could say is a good one he recognizes that he really doesn't know them and they don't know him but also the fact that he's having that impulse in that moment speaks to the fact that that's the state they're in, right? And he let it get to that state. And that's the expectation of him as a father. So there's the negative side to it as well. And of course, seeing the way he pulls them out of school, they seem to be okay with it. The school certainly seems to be pretty horrified. And then when they get out there, you know, let's just ride in the back of the truck, which I know this was a different time, believe sure. me, but let's ride in the back of this truck and let's sip have the boys on, sip on a beer. Have the boys drink their first beers. <laughs> you know, which oh. you know you know, a sip or two is one thing, but the kids kind of go to town. Oh yeah. Know? And and that does These speak kids. to the fact that again, his instincts, like Mabel's, often are really not 
the best. Oh, man. Watching these kids in this film, um, again, which is intentional, but yes. whew, it's a rough go. Yeah, Just thinking what they're living with yeah. and the volatility um, from both parents. Right. And there's nothing really treacly about the performances or those moments. I think I think that's Cassavetti's doing what he does, like capturing spontaneity, seeming spontaneity and sort of discovery, even in these moments with the kids. I do want to close real quick, just acknowledge the odd synchronicity of having finished this film, thinking about the madness and the way the film is this indictment of masculinity and how that all plays into this role that poor Mabel is expected to play and can't play. And Right after it, I get on Twitter and I'm just scrolling through my timeline and I see a tweet from our friend Melissa Tamiga, who was not talking about this film. In fact, she was talking about Vertigo. She had just rewatched oh, Vertigo, too. right? Yeah. And she said, I was particularly <laughs> struck on my rewatch by how important the patriarchal assumption that women are crazy is to Elster's plan. All these men sitting around deciding about Madeline, their assumptions about women are essential. And I do think there's an aspect of that in this movie too, this, this kind of desire to call it, whether it's anxiety or she's crazy or unusual or wacko or whatever different terms that they try to apply to it they know this is not what a mother and wife is supposed to be but somehow they accept that well some women just can't take it it's almost as if they expect that that's the way life is but then rather than diagnose the problem or consider that they might be the problem and change their ways again it's just well some women are fragile it's just a failing on the woman's part that she has to overcome if she doesn't overcome it she's a bad mother she's a bad wife well, Nick does offer his own diagnosis, which again is this this you know weird mixture of good intentions, but also like really the worst thing to say. Yes, a, she's unusual, unusual, but not crazy, but not crazy, right? <laughs> so, and then so everything's fine. Turns on a dime, and I think calls her wacko <laughs> in a moment. So yeah, he is a complicated and at times very disturbing character. Certainly, that is the second film in our John Cassavetes marathon. Even though we had a very different rating ultimately and level of appreciation for this film we did not have a mabel and nick like throwdown well it's all that counseling we've been going to maybe it is maybe it's paying off the couple's counseling yeah indeed okay the third film the killing of a chinese bookie will be up next week we remind you that you can follow along and get all the details about this marathon at filmspotting.net slash marathons. At filmspotting.net, you can also find 14 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And that's where you want to go during Film Spotting Madness to vote in our Best of the 2000s tournament. Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to get yourself a Film Spotting t-shirt or some other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter as well. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And if you want to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, it has its own page now mm-hmm. on the website. We figured Sam was doing a good enough job. He should get his own page. That's is that it. how it worked? Yeah. Okay. Filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, Greta with Isabel Huppert and Chloe Grace Moretz, directed by Neil Jordan and Tyler Perry's A Medea Family Funeral. In limited release, opening here in Chicago, Chiwetel Ejiofor's directing debut, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. Heartily recommended by the next picture show's Tasha Robinson okay. on the most recent episode, actually. Good to know. Next week, we will discuss Captain Marvel and get to Film Spotting Madness, first round results, and second round matchups. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. 
Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute and give us a rating or a review on iTunes. We always want to reach a few new listeners. And that's the best way to do it. Our music this week comes from Strand of Oaks. More information is at strandofoaks.net. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. The dark night, there will be blood. Oh my gosh, I broke the mic. Suspicious start. I've never done this. No. Does this just? It looks like it screws. Yeah, it looks like it does. La di da da da. La di da. Let's all go. Oh, there he is. Am I back on? Josh is. Josh is back. Okay. I think. I think. I think. Okay. I think we're ready to go. Are you ready? Yeah. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.